Hello and thanks for watching. My name is Michael Brock. I'm the senior pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me to Romans chapter 2, page number 940 in your pew Bibles, Romans chapter 2. While you're turning there, the children are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. This sermon this morning continues the series in the book of Romans. This is sermon number 11. And what we've seen thus far is that Paul begins the book of Romans talking about the gospel and how it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And of course, the gospel is needed, which is what much of chapter 1 and now chapter 2 also continues and chapter 3 will continue to say that that gospel is needed. Man needs to be rescued. He needs to be delivered because man has rejected God and brought down God's wrath upon himself. In chapter 1, we saw that that wrath of God comes down upon Gentiles. Or we could also say just those without any sort of special revelation, such as the Ten Commandments. Now here in chapter 2, he's addressing the Jews. It could be that he's just addressing sort of a, a pagan moralist, which I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but he, he's really addressing the Jews, or again, maybe a pagan moralist. In other words, he's addressing those who have special revelation, those who do know the law of God, those who've had it revealed to them. Now, no doubt, the Jews, when they would have started hearing this letter read, in chapter 1, they would have been uh, somewhat smug, <laughs> They would have been uh, pretty self-righteous, um, enjoying even the, the chapter 1 exposure of everyone else's sins, the Gentiles' sins, very confident that, that, that they themselves would not be among those being described. But then you turn the page to chapter 2 and Paul puts them in their place. He puts those who are spiritually privileged in their place. And that's where we pick up reading this morning, beginning in verse 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 2, I'll read through verse 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, we ask that during these few moments together, you would open our eyes and enable us to behold wonderful things from this, your word. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
This passage is about judgment. And I mentioned last week that um, this idea of judgment is very popular in our world today, or I, I should say it's so more notorious really than popular. Um, many people would say uh, that the, the phrase in the verse, uh, the, the phrase, thou shalt not judge, should be added to the Ten Commandments. It's, it should be number 11. Of course, some who really don't know what the Ten Commandments are um, might think that it's one of the Ten Commandments. And while you would think that God... The great judge, the perfect judge, the righteous judge would be exempt from judging. Or why you, why you think that God would think that people would think that God uh, is, is okay to judge. It's, it's proper for him to judge. I'm really coming to the belief in modern times that people nowadays don't even allow God to judge. He's supposed to simply accept us as we are. He's supposed to love people which means to affirm them in whatever they do and, and just support them at all times. Romans chapter 2 throws a cup of cold water on that idea. Because what this passage clearly teaches is that God judges. He judges man and He judges according to what we do. He, court, he, he judges according to our works. That was the theme from last week really, which I preached on verses 1 through 11. And, and these verses really continue that theme, which is this. Salvation is by grace. Judgment is according to works. Salvation is by grace. Judgment is according to works. Now, in particular, Paul continues this, uh, the theme here by saying in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words... Everyone dies. That's what's being taught here. Everyone dies. Those exposed to the written law of God are, as Joel Beakey says it, guiltier. I'm not sure. I didn't know that that was a proper English word, but it's used in a, in a, in a professionally done uh, work. And Joel Beakey is a very smart man, so I, I believe that word is probably proper. proper. Those who've been exposed, is what that verse says, to the written law of God are guiltier. They will be judged on the basis of that written law. But remember, Paul's not just picking on the Jews here. If you look back at verse 11, which I didn't read this morning, but have the last couple of weeks, verse 11 is just a five-word verse that says very simply, for God shows no partiality. So Jews... Gentiles, those without the law, those with the law, those spiritually privileged, those without spiritual privilege, all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And what you see here in verse 14, as he's just continuing his thoughts here, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Those, as what he's saying here, those who don't have the spiritual privilege, those who don't have the written law of God, the special revelation of God, they still are, uh, are judged according to the light they have been given. None escape. 
These Gentiles, their constitution is what he's saying here in verse 14. The constitution as human beings made in God's image means that they have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. So the issue here that we've, that we've seen that really is wrapped up in verse 11, God shows no partiality. Just because, as he's saying here in these verses, you Jews, you religious people... Uh, are religious and have special spiritual privileges doesn't mean that you won't be judged. All will stand before the throne of God and be judged by what he or she did. That's what the passage is teaching. Now, I preached on that the whole sermon. Last, last week's sermon was all about that. And, and I came up, I think, with about eight or nine different questions that, that come from this. And so as I worked on it this week, I had my normal sermon, according to my notes on my iPad, is about 10 pages. That gets you about 30 minutes worth. So uh, that's, that's how it usually works. Well, I had 21 pages yesterday. So I thought, well, we can either stay in here for an hour and a half and we'll see how you do, if you can hang in there with it, or we'll just cut it up into two sermons. So that's what I decided to do, just cut it up into two sermons. So today I'm just going to try to answer two questions. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll deal with some others. What are a couple of the questions that this idea about God judging according to works, what are a couple of the questions that, that, that arise from this concept? First of all, it, the question comes up, aren't all sins the same? I mean, you know, you just talked here about this word guiltier, that those who have been exposed to the written law of God are guiltier. How does that work? I thought all sins were the same. Well... Very simply, no, it's not true that all sins are the same. Uh, some sins are worse in the sight of God than others. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 12. I'm only going to read verses 47 and, and 48. But it, it, here in this parable, I, was, I thought about reading the entire thing. But it's really a parable where Jesus is telling us about a servant being ready for the master of the house to return. And this is what we read in Luke 12, verse 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, okay, that's the idea of having knowledge, special privilege, knowledge. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Paul here is echoing what, in Romans chapter 2, what, what Jesus teaches there in Luke chapter 12. That with the law, with spiritual privilege, with uh, special relationship, special connections, um, and rejection of that, there will be a greater punishment than those who never had that to begin with. The way it's phrased in our shorter catechism. Um, in, in Reformed and Presbyterian worlds, we have uh, a couple of, um, well, we have a thing called the Westminster Standards. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a 33-chapter document that sort of summarizes what the Bible teaches. And then we have these catechisms, which are question and answer, really teaching tools. And the shorter catechism, which is the one that most of us will maybe try to put to memory today, which was originally for the kids because it was shorter, um, the shorter catechism phrases it this way. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer, 
some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So when we think about our lives, how we behave, being judged by good works, we need to think carefully and we need to be vigilant because all sins are not the same. All sins make us guilty before God. That's very important to get what I'm saying here. I mean, the smallest sin, stealing a paper clip from the office. Um, all sins, uh, the stealing a paper clip from the office and, 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 and it makes us a thief, makes us as guilty in a sense, uh, uh, gives us that sinful nature. It makes us guilty before God and equally worthy of His wrath and separation from Him as if we murdered someone. They all make us, the smallest sin makes us guilty before God in the same way. But certain sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And so it should lead us to greater vigilance, greater care in the way that we live our lives. Second question, and this is where I'll spend the remainder of our time today. What are good works? I mean, if we're judged according to our works, I mean, what are good works? And there are three things. First of all, good works are determined by God. A good work is only a good work if God has commanded that work. In other words, just because I think something is nice or good or kind, that doesn't mean anything. A good work is only a good work if God's Word says that it's a good work. Uh, the way it's phrased in our Confession of Faith in chapter 16, paragraph 1 there, good works are only such as God hath commanded in His Holy Word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. A good work is only a good work if God says it's a good work. And in the context of Romans here, especially Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we've been looking at, we see that good works, for starters, are the opposite of what we see listed in chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. Which, I'll read that, beginning in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Good works are the opposite of those things that are listed there in Romans chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which we read last week, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there it talks about patience in well-doing. And the particular well-doing that's being spoken of here is seeking glory, 
which John Stott uh, says here is the manifestation of God Himself. That's what they want. That's what we, they seek is the manifestation of God Himself. Seeking God's honor, which is essentially His approval, and immortality. Seeking the unfading joy of God's presence. And of course, we would contrast that there with verse 8. Being self-seeking and not obeying the truth. This is the way it reads in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, that obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And, and then finally here in, in chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So do you know what you want to know what good works are? Look at the law of God. Look at remind yourself of the, those ten commandments, and then read in the Sermon on the Mount to get Jesus' commentary on the ten commandments, an expansion of the ten commandments, and to understand in a deeper way what all the ten commandments mean. And very practically, go look at your Westminster Larger Catechism and read through the ten commandments. The bottom line is that good works are determined by God. Just because I think something is, is a nice thing to do or seems like a kind thing, or that doesn't mean that it is. God's Word is what tells us what is a good work or not. Second, good works, they're not only determined by God, but they are evidence of faith. Evidence of faith. Back to the confession in chapter 16, verse uh, Paragraph 2, these good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. That, that's, that's the key phrase there. They are the fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. In other words, good works are not the basis upon which you stand before God, but they are the evidence that you are in right standing with God. Let me repeat, repeat that because that's kind of essential. I mean, that, that is sort of the key thing. Uh, good works are not the basis upon which you stand before God. They are the evidence that you are standing properly, rightly, righteously before God. That righteousness that you need to stand before God only comes by the work of Christ that we receive by faith alone. But... That faith, if it's true and lively, will not stay alone. It will always produce good works. And that's, what, that's why I say that good works, they're determined by God and they are evidence of faith. But they're so closely related, this faith and good works, that it's not wrong for Paul to say, as he says here, that only righteous people go to heaven. And that's what verse 13 reads. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The way John Calvin uh, references this concept when he's commentating, uh, in his commentary on Ezekiel chapter 18, he says it this way. Faith can be no more separated from works than the sun from its heat. That's the way they work. We're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. Without good works, our faith is revealed to be dubious, false, untrue. We're imposters. Years ago, I, I, I mean, it's been about, it was in Montgomery, so it was 20-something years ago. I was evangelizing a guy, and his whole philosophy stood in this verse. As a matter of fact, 
we talked about this. We debated this very verse. And he refused to believe that salvation was by grace through faith. He believed that goodness um, earns us points with God. What I'm telling you and what we'll see as we continue to work through Romans here is that the Bible teaches that goodness is the fruit of true and lively faith. Not the thing that gets us that true and lively faith. It's the fruit of it. You know, I, I'm originally from Atlanta and uh, have said for years that I'm a Georgia Tech fan. So sorry to all you Georgia Bulldog friend, fans uh, that, I've, that I've made that claim. But I've, I've been thinking about it this week. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a Tech fan because I had a lot of friends from high school go to Tech. And uh, my father-in-law is a graduate from Tech. And so there, uh, there's certainly um, some affection for, for Tech in my heart. But I don't have really any works to prove my claim. I mean, really. I've, I've been to maybe two games in my life. I don't have a single shirt that says Georgia Tech. I don't have any bumper stickers. I don't, I don't have any evidence to prove that I'm a, a Georgia Tech fan. So you know what that means? Seriously, it means I'm really not a fan. Matter of fact, and I thought about it this morning, and then I intentionally didn't go see. I don't even know if they won yesterday. I don't know even if they played yesterday. So how can I claim to be a Georgia Tech fan when I, when I don't go to games? I don't wear their T-shirts. I mean... I do know what you're supposed to say when someone says, what's the good word, which I won't say behind this sacred desk. But it's a, you know, you're, it's, there, are, there are a few things that I know. I know some of the language that you're supposed to use, but I'm an imposter. I'm not really a tech fan. I just say it. There's no evidence. And in a similar way, we may profess to follow Christ, but there be no evidence. At the day of judgment, what will the evidence show? This is what we read in Matthew 25, and I'm going to read it from beginning in verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, these are the words of Jesus, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a, sheep separates the sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It's just a little bit of a, as a side note here. When, you've, when you have welcomed my people, when you have welcomed my teachers, when you have welcomed my followers, then you've done that to me. And then, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and, or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, 
Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Works, behaviors, and particularly welcoming those who represent Christ and teach the gospel, the people of God here. These sorts of works reveal something about you. What do your works, I ask you this morning, reveal about you? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? When you're standing before God in heaven, will your faith be revealed to be true and, and genuine? Or will you be exposed as being a fraud, an imposter, inauthentic? And I still have one more sub-point here, but I will just say this. Maybe you're here today and you're, you know, you're, you're kind of feeling insecure about your relationship with the Lord. Listen, I would love to chat with you after the service. Or we'll get together and have some coffee or lunch or something this week. Good works, determined by God, evidence of faith, and then third and finally, determine our rewards. They determine our rewards. I just read here from chapter 25 about judgment where, where sheep and goat are separated. This is sometimes referred to as, a, as the separating judgment or a, a, a judgment of faith. And in addition to this separating judgment is a rewarding judgment or a judgment of works. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of questions we have about the future and heaven and hell and and judgment and, and whether this these two judgments in a sense at the same time or not, we don't we don't really know. But what we do know is that our good works will be rewarded. In first Timothy four, Paul writes, beginning in verse six, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, there's a whole lot we don't know about the judgment. But what we do is that our good works will be rewarded. And then, guess what? We will cast those rewards, those crowns down at the feet of Jesus. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, we read, The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. That's the example that we have. That's the, that's the model that we will follow. Why? Because verse uh, chapter 4 of Revelation, Revelation 4 continues. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. Our rewards, our crowns will be given to Jesus because He is worthy. Because He has forgiven you of all your sins. He has made heaven 
your home, made you fit for heaven. We're loved with an everlasting love. We have the smile of God upon us. So this morning, I just challenge you and charge you to remember that indeed salvation is by grace, but judgment is according to works. So let's give ourselves to holiness. Let's give ourselves to the work of the Lord. Let's strive to avoid coming in to the kingdom and coming to the king empty-handed. Let's watch our lives carefully to honor our king. Let's, let's quit being so casual about sin in order to glorify our king. You know, there are no happy, disobedient Christians. There are no happy, disobedient Christians. So we, we, we should beg God to strengthen us and enable us to live a life worthy, obedient to the glory of God and for our good. I, I'm not sure who, I think it was maybe John Piper who, who would oftentimes end his prayers, Lord, for your glory and for our good. That's the way this pursuit of holiness, righteousness is. It's for his glory and for our good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in a few moments we will be singing Rejoice the Lord is King. And I pray that we will love the idea of living a life, a good life for our King. That will be motivated and inspired to run the race that is set before us with endurance to honor and glorify our King. And I pray that You will enable us to recognize at the end of the day that it's Your Spirit who empowers us strengthens us, and enables us to do that. Through Jesus we pray.